The climate has changed on Capitol Hill, where lawmakers are plowing ahead with a full slate of policy proposals and funding considerations. Hearings also abound. Our focus today is on one, a House discussion about industrial emissions and how to reduce them. This is Hard Facts. I'm Robert Johnson. Today, members of the House Energy and Commerce Committee held a subcommittee hearing on industrial emissions and whether there's a way to achieve a 100% clean economy. A half dozen experts were invited to the table where members of the Subcommittee on Environment and Climate Change gathered to examine solutions. Among them, Dr. Jeremy Gregory, the executive director of the MIT Concrete Sustainability Hub, also a guest just two weeks ago here on Hard Facts. Here's what he told the committee about reducing industry emissions. And now we'll go to Dr. Gregory, please, for uh, five minutes. You're recognized for your opening statement. Good morning, Chairman Tonko, Ranking Member Shimkus, and members of the subcommittee. I'm pleased to be here on behalf of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology's Concrete Sustainability Hub and the Portland Cement Association to talk about concrete's role in a sustainable, low-carbon economy and how Congress and the cement and concrete industries can work together to achieve this goal. I'm the executive director of the MIT CS Hub, a dedicated interdisciplinary team of researchers working on science, engineering, and economics for the built environment since 2009. PCA is the premier organization serving America's cement manufacturers. Since the CS Hub is jointly funded by the cement and concrete industries, our research teams regularly interact with companies in this arena and also stakeholders who are involved in decisions related to concrete, such as architects, engineers, and contractors. In my testimony today, I'd like to provide the committee with some key actions related to the cement and concrete industries that will accelerate us on the path to sustainability in the industrial manufacturing sector. For background, cement is the powdery substance that's mixed with water and aggregates to make concrete. Uh, if you didn't realize there was a difference between cement and concrete, you can join my beloved mother in that esteemed club. Although cement and concrete have different manufacturing processes and emission profiles, they're inherently linked as end-use uh, building material whose impacts uh, other emissions such as building energy consumption or vehicle fuel consumption on pavements. Thus, it's important to consider the embodied emissions for these materials in the context of their full life cycle. Furthermore, concrete is the most used building material in the world for a reason. Uh, it's a relatively low cost and low environmental footprint material that provides critical functionality for buildings and infrastructure. It's necessary to meet societal goals for sustainable development. There are four primary levers for reducing cement production CO2 emissions. One, improving the energy efficiency of the cement plant. Two, switching to alternative fuels that are less carbon intensive than conventional fuels, such as biomass and waste materials. Three, increasing the use of low carbon materials in the production of blended cements. And four, using emergent carbon capsule and utilization and storage technologies, including in the production of new building materials. A technology roadmap for the global cement industry estimated that meeting targets for a maximum two degrees C global temperature increase would require a 24% reduction in cement industry CO2 emissions by 2050, with CCUS accounting for 48% of emissions reductions, followed by use of blended cements at 37%. There are fewer CO2 reduction opportunities associated with thermal energy efficiency or switching to alternative fuels, and thus they only accounted for 15% of cumulative CO2 reductions. 
Nevertheless, there are several opportunities to improve energy efficiency and increase use of alternative fuels, and the cement industry in the U.S. has made significant strides towards these goals. However, regulatory programs are often barriers to making additional improvements, and there are some specific programs and suggested modifications that are detailed in my written testimony. Cement production is unique from most other industrial processes in that it has emissions associated with uh, energy generation and the production process. Thus, even if zero or low carbon fuels can be used, emissions will still be a fundamental part of the process. As a consequence, CCUS is necessary to meet deep decarbonization goals and pilot programs in the cement industry are underway across the world. Fortunately, there are several companies that are demonstrating how captured carbon may be used to produce binders and aggregates, thereby enabling circularity for these emissions. However, cost is a significant barrier to the implementation of carbon capture technologies at cement plants in terms of uh, capital costs and the adoption of carbon utilizing materials in terms of higher product costs in the building material marketplace. Thus, there are significant opportunities for Congress to provide targeted CCUS research, development, and deployment funding that is specific to the cement sector and incentives for adoption of innovative technologies and materials. Increasing the adoption of blended or alternative binders will require overcoming the risk aversion of engineers specifying concrete. Engineers typically rely on prescriptive-based specifications that detail the types and limits of materials that can be used in concrete mixtures. In addition, there's a significant burden of proof to demonstrate that new low-carbon materials will meet long-term structural and durability requirements. Supporting a shift to performance-based specifications for concrete would spur innovation in the design of low-carbon concrete mixtures. Sponsoring research on the long-term structural and durability performance of concretes using blended or alternative cements will help to mitigate perceived risks by engineers. As you can see, there are steps Congress, industry and academia can take together that would ensure the continued role of cement and concrete in sustainable development. Mr. Chairman and members of the committee, we're ready to work with you to pursue the path toward the goal of a clean and sustainable economy together. When it came time for questions, the subcommittee chairman, Congressman Paul Tonko from New York, asked whether progress is really possible. There are challenges, but we should not underestimate what can be accomplished over the course of a few decades. If we start right now putting in place the right incentives, the research investments, and standards, how much progress can we make by mid-century to decarbonize industry? And what is your recommendation for the very first thing we should do to get started? Um, I think that actually one of the simplest things that can be done that are specific to the cement and concrete sector are related to this use of performance-based specifications that I mentioned. Um, because, you know, we heard a lot of discussion about CCUS, which should definitely be done, but if we develop new materials that have a lower carbon footprint, but we can't create a market demand for them, then they won't be used. And we've already seen failures of companies that produce these things in this country who couldn't do it in a cost-competitive way and also um, couldn't uh, uh, get adoption of this from uh, uh, engineers who use it. And so encouraging uh, essentially engineers rather than to say, this is the mixture that we've already used that's something safe and we know, get them to say, what are the performance metrics that you're interested in and then tell me what the measurement is of the carbon footprint as well. And believe it or not, that sounds like a simple and obvious thing, but it's sort of like instead of using a specific recipe to make cookies, tell me what are the kind of cookies that you're interested in, what are the attributes of them. That's what we need for uh, materials as well to create demand for these low-carbon materials. Gregory also had a chance to explain the benefit of alternative fuels in reducing emissions. The question comes from Congressman Billy Long of Missouri. My friend, the ranking member, Shemkis, has been quoting 
Bill Gates all morning, and uh, I'm sitting here thinking about Jed Clampett in his cement pond. So that's the difference in Missouri and Illinois. Dr. Gregory, in your testimony, you referenced the use of alternative fuels as an easy way to reduce emissions in the cement production process. In the United States, only 15% of fuel comes from these alternative sources, compared to the more than double that in the European Union. Can you explain why these alternative fuel sources would reduce emissions? Yes. Uh, basically, the use of alternative fuels goes back to that heating uh, the kiln that I mentioned, over 2,500 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. Usually, we use fossil fuels, coal, in some cases, natural gas, because we need it to get that hot. The alternative fuels are often biomass or waste materials, like scrap tires. And uh, essentially, that, that's, that, those are the types of alternative fuels. The limitations usually are about concerns about clean air, but as you mentioned, in other countries, they use significantly more. So we, uh, uh, because they, the, the 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 type of incineration that's done in those can still generate that uh, energy from uh, the waste materials while maintaining clean air. That kind of leads into my next question: How does federal policy discourage the use of these fuels, and how could environmental laws be reformed? to promote their use. It's exactly that, trying to uh, amend uh, acts like uh, the, the Clean Air Act and also RICRA to basically uh, better allow for increased use of these alternative fuels in cement plants. And in your opinion, is this the easiest way to reduce carbon emissions in the cement industry? And how much of a reduction of carbon emissions would we see if the amount of alternative fuels we use rises to the level of the EU? This is one of the low-hanging fruits. Uh, we can definitely uh, uh, get increased uh, emissions reductions associated with these alternative fuels. Like I said, at a global level, there's been some estimates that we can uh, increase uh, reductions by about 10%, um, and so which is definitely uh, significant and something that so would be we should a 10% go after. reduction in yeah. carbon emissions. Yeah, yeah carbon yeah. emissions. Yeah. While Gregory's testimony was focused on the cement and concrete industry. Comments offered by the National Association of Manufacturers addressed more broadly the impact of climate policies on business. Ross Eisenberg, vice president of NAM Energy and Resources Policy, tackles the topic. Good morning, Chairman Tonko, Ranking Member Shimkus, uh, Ranking Member Walden for today, members of the subcommittee. My name is Ross Eisenberg. I'm delighted to be here representing the National Association of Manufacturers uh, and talk about our commitment to, to climate change. In the eyes of America's manufacturers, it's time to act on climate now. And the real question for policymakers should not be whether to act, but frankly, how to do so effectively. Manufacturers are doing our part. We have been and we will continue to do that. Over the past decade, manufacturers in the United States have reduced the carbon footprint of our products by 21%, while we've increased our value to the economy by 18% over that same time frame. Overall, the US manufacturing sector has one of the world's lowest carbon intensities per dollar of GDP because we're so efficient. Uh, a fraction of the carbon intensities of our major, of other major manufacturing economies like China and India. For example, just to put uh, a finer point on this, al uh, aluminum produced in the United States is uh, less carbon intensive than just about any other aluminum produced somewhere else and imported into the United States. It is three times cleaner uh, in that respect than aluminum produced in the Middle East and, and imported in the United States. It's four times cleaner than aluminum produced in China and imported in the United States. So our efficiency is, is, a, is a win here for us, and we should really be encouraging manufacturing to come back and, and really operate here because that's where it's going to be done the cleanest. The type of deep decarbonization called for by this committee would require a dramatic set of technology and lifestyle changes across the economy. It's going to be extremely difficult. That is pretty much without question. 
It's going to require us all to work together here and around the world, and it will almost certainly carry a cost. It is not, however, impossible. I want to make that clear. It is not, however, impossible. Uh, and we're at the table for this discussion for that reason. Manufacturers do appreciate the careful, considered, deliberate approach that this committee has taken to listen to us, frankly, and to, to have the conversation that you're all having. In the course of those deliberations, two prevailing views have really emerged. The first is, uh, should we really be focusing on enabling innovation? And, uh, and the other is, to, to, should we be empowering the government to take action? In the eyes of manufacturers, we believe we need to do both. And here's why. We need innovation because the manufacturing sector is different from other sectors. And the technologies that may work in other sectors just may not work so well in ours. The process used to make a brick is substantially different than the process used to make steel or paper, rubber, plastic, fertilizer, aluminum, not to mention finished goods like trucks and cars and airplanes and food and beverage and, 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 and electronics. Innovation is and always will be the key to reducing the carbon intensity of those sectors, and it's encouraging to hear everybody on this panel really say the same thing. Innovation by itself, however, is just not going to be enough. And so for that reason, the federal government does have a clear role in setting climate policy. This begins by re-engaging on the international stage to achieve a binding, fair global climate treaty. And with that backdrop, we hope, the NA, uh, we hope that the Congress will enact a single unified climate policy that meets specific targets, ensures a level playing field, and avoids carbon leakage. In other words, not simply outsourcing our carbon to another country that has lower standards than we do. And it'll pres preserve consumer choice and manufacturing competitiveness. My written testimony provides more details on both of these proposals, but together, we believe they should be the foundation of the U.S. response to climate change. Now, as we embark down, embark down this road, we need to have a serious discussion about, about cost. For manufacturers, the math really does matter. The average manufacturer pays about $20,000 per employee per year to comply with regulations. The small manufacturers pay even more, about $35,000 per employee, because they can't scale it up. Uh, any new cost imposed by a climate policy will be added to that already hefty base of costs and regulatory expenditures. So to the extent that manufacturers have to bear those extra costs, Congress should consider reducing regulatory tax or other economic burdens to, to make, basically make manufacturers whole and keep us whole and keep us competitive. The math also matters for the internal decision making, and I think that's something that I really want to stress today. A great deal of the potential reductions are going to come from installation of new equipment, new processes, innovation, essentially. Manufacturers' budget for discretionary investments like this, they're always looking to make these investments. But at the end of the day, the decision on whether to spend that money involves consideration of a, of a wide range of factors, including payback time, the risk of stranded investments, operating risks, reliability, environmental permitting, and, uh, and external factors like the future of the plan itself in a competitive environment. Focusing on this math should be a top priority of anyone seeking to reduce the carbon intensity of the manufacturing sector. The NAM believes we can be a part of the solution, and we look forward to working with this committee to pass and implement some of our preferred policy solutions. There are many near-term actions that we believe Congress and the administration could take to accelerate our progress towards deep emission cuts. My written statement includes a number of these, and I, I hope we can talk about them during the Q&A section. Uh, we think these would make a real difference and ensure that emissions continue to decline in the manufacturing sector while uh, Congress uh, and, and the administration work out some of these bigger policy issues as well. I appreciate the time to testify today, and, and thank you. Next week, we'll have the latest from Washington on the issues industry follows, transportation funding, resiliency, and climate, from voices you won't hear anywhere else. That's Wednesday, September 25th on Hard Facts, a podcast production of the Portland Cement Association. I'm Robert Johnson. I'll see you then.